Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University, the host of the channel. Today we discuss about a new book in economics. The title is Understanding Economic Change Advances in Evolutionary Economics. This was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press. I'm here with one of the two co-editors. This is Professor Ulrich Witt from Max Planck Institute, Vienna. The other co-editor is Andreas Chai from Griffith University, Queensland. Welcome, Ulrich. Please introduce yourself, your current affiliation, and your background. Well, I'm uh, the uh, Director Emeritus of the Max Planck Institute of Economics in Vienna, uh, where I served for some 18 years as Director of the Evolutionary Economics Unit. So I spent quite some years on uh, research with my team in Vienna um, on developing various approaches to an evolutionary interpretation of economic questions. Um, so we tried to go beyond the neo-Schumpeterian industrial dynamics research. Um, we also contributed to that, but we wanted to extend the agenda to include various other topics. And the framework we chose for that purpose was um, a view on evolution in nature and the role of humans in this evolution, more recently with um, a co-evolution of culture and economic capabilities. Um, I was therefore also willing to accept to be the editor of the Journal of Bioeconomics, a Springer journal, which I edit since 2013 as editor-in-chief, where I also try to push the agenda that um, somehow um, economics and our natural environment are closely intertwined and their evolution is, of course, contingent nowadays on economic evolution. The economy creates a lot of externalities, as economists call it, or influences on our natural environment that change the habitat or the living area in which humans um, traditionally live since thousands of years. And uh, that has repercussions also on our own economic activities and on our uh, attitudes towards the economy and nature. Let me ask you for our listeners to 
introduce uh, what is bioeconomics and to contextualize this within evolution economics and the heterodoxy in economics? Well, bioeconomics is a broader research area which covers basically all interactions between economists and biologists. So this is, a, a, you know, in a sense, a two-way exchange. One way is that economists offer many of the tools they have developed in management uh, questions managing the economy, uh, including the optimization calculus in various versions for biologists to solve certain problems where nature is close to optimizing features of um, animals, features of plants, etc. So that would be the direction from economics to biology. And on the other hand, um, there is a lot of flow of ideas on human behavior and its uh, natural environment from uh, biological research into economics, not least, of course, uh, the big issue of the um, theory of evolution and the role of humans in this theory. So Andreas Chai is your former doctoral student, if I answer yes. correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the other authors and uh, the origin of the book? Yeah, the origin is uh, quite interesting. Um, I didn't mention that in in the introduction, but perhaps this is an occasion to do it. Um, many of these papers, uh, in fact, almost all of them, except the introduction, um, were papers that were appeared in the Max Planck Institute discussion paper series, papers on economics and evolution, and many of them were difficult to publish because they took a view on economic problems that is very unusual for mainstream journals, but even for less mainstream journals. So we have quite a lot of uh, thought that is speculative, that risks being attacked for the positions it takes. Um, but these are several authors that have uh, had a big influence in economics in their special fields, um, not necessarily evolutionary economics. And it is interesting to see how they interpret what their ideas of evolution and the role of evolution in economics is. So in this sense, it is uh, advances in evolutionary economics um, is putting in new ideas, trying out new ideas that have not been tried before. And of course, um, this may be attacked, this may be controversial, but I think that is exactly what makes a science advance by infusing um, ideas that do not follow the beaten track of uh, the standard questions in research. Okay, so the book, which by the way is published by Cambridge University Press, is divided into five parts. You have the introduction, and then part two, which is conceptual and methodological problems. And then we have perspectives on evolutionary microeconomics, and then advances in explaining and assessing institutional evolution. And finally, 
evolutionary perspectives on welfare and sustainability. You have a chapter in the introductory part and then the chapter at the conclusion of the book. Do you want to focus on one of the two or both? Yeah, we can do that. The uh, introduction is um, newly written, brand new. It's um, unlike some of the papers who have um, emerged over the past years. This one is just uh, written on purpose this year. Uh, and it tries to take the position um, of understanding what the problem is in uh, economic, evolutionary economics with regard to formulating a general theory. Um, in principle, uh, we have a problem with explanations in <clears throat> evolutionary economics, even though we all agree what um, is the selling point of evolutionary economics, namely that it aims at explaining that the economy is a system that is subject to change from within, to use Schumpeter's formulation, and that uh, canonical textbook economics is not very good for such an explanation. But we do not agree at all about what is needed for a better explanation. There are very different views of that, and in fact, um, there are complications uh, because a causal explanation in our context can mean quite different things. It could be first an explanation that attributes um, a singular observed change to a particular cause. I would call this a historical explanation. Um, to give an example, uh, in uh, 2001, the uh, Swiss airline, Swiss Air, went bankrupt. And we can now look into what particular reason led to this bankrupt of this airline, which was in business for 70 years. Uh, on the other hand, second, we can have explanations that attribute a recurrent sequence of uh, events, of change, to the same causal pattern. In the example, this would be the fact that not only Swiss Air went out of business from the 1995 onwards, Sabena, the Belgian airline, LTU, the German competitor of Lufthansa, Northwestern Airlines, Continental Airlines, US Airways, all um, went out of business and there is a kind of pattern here which could be argued to follow the industrial life cycle hypothesis which postulates that in a maturing industry you see a shakeout pattern. This would be such a pattern explanation where we do not attribute the bankruptcy of a single airline to a particular cause but rather the uh, ongoing process of shakeout of bankruptcy or uh, going out of business to a pattern that also occurs in other maturing industries. It follows a certain pattern to which we subsume this one. Um, 
And in, in my understanding, evolutionary economics is mostly so far about these uh, pattern explanations. The life cycle uh, theory is one example which I mentioned, but I could also mention Schumpeter's own theory of economic development, which is actually a business cycle theory, arguing that the innovative entrepreneurs drive the economy into a cycle of um, breakthrough, imitation and growth by imitation, which actually leads to an overinvestment in the innovative industry, which then triggers a, a, um, a crisis and a bust, a decline, um, so that the innovative wave uh, fades out. This is also a, a pattern explanation. It's not a single cause, but a pattern that needs to be explained. And Schumpeter's explanation is um, the interaction of innovative entrepreneurs and their imitative competitors. Um, I could mention here North's theory of institutional change operating through a hierarchy of changing rules. Nelson, Winters, Nelson and Winters' theory of industrial selection processes, um, <clears throat> which applies the selection algorithm as a pattern to explain recurrent industrial adaptation processes. Um, in Metcalf's version, this is presented in the form of a replicator dynamics, which is claimed to occur over and again in industries, again, a pattern that is in this case then re explained by a selection process where uh, behavior that deviates from the current average is selected out so that the average moves and finally converges to the end state, which is um, um, uh, an equilibrium state, unfortunately, <laughs> because um, evolutionary economists don't like equilibrium states, but it is not a market equilibrium. It is an occupation equilibrium. Um, that is, uh, it explains that the process of selection comes to an end where the remaining firms are the competitive firms that have all the same best technology. It could be mentioned here that uh, Dorsey's theory of technological tra trajectories is another example of such a pattern explanation. Also Bresnahan's theory of general purpose technologies. Um, and well, I could go on in the sense uh, mentioning what kind of explanations for what kind of phenomena evolutionary economics is mostly focused on. And what, oh, sorry, what is change for mainstream economics then? Well, I don't want to compare that at the moment with uh, mainstream, although I could do that. Let me first get to the third kind of explanation, which I think is the crucial one for an evolutionary approach in economics, because that is the question of whether we can attribute all change that occurs uh, from within to a general causal mechanism of change. Um, and if you ask me what is the example here, I have to say there is no example in economics. We don't have such an explanation yet. 
we usually refer to explanations in biology, which by means of Darwin's theory of genetic evolution have such a type 3 explanation, a kind of umbrella theory. Nothing makes, makes sense except uh, in the sense of ev evolution or uh, selection, uh, natural selection. And um, such an overarching, such an umbrella theory um, would be required for these type 3 explanations. Um, and I can mention here that um, this was actually the idea that Thorsten Veblen launched. He wanted even to adopt Darwin's uh, notion of uh, natural selection and apply it to explain how culture and eventually the economic technology and economic organization followed from what evolutionary nature has created and endowed human beings with. So um, this is actually uh, the challenge in my view for evolutionary economics to think about whether we can really uh, develop such a theory um, that is an umbrella theory. Um, and if we think about it, I think um, what is lacking is a sound criterion of fitness. Um, Darwin's theory profits from the fact that it has a very clear uh, fitness criterion that has turned out to be uh, relevant in all cases in understanding how evolution works and what it has produced in nature. We don't have such a fitness criterion that explains why certain options are chosen and others are not chosen. Um, in chapter 3 of the book, Joel Nokia has um, a suggestion. He argues that um, economic evolution is basic, basically driven by the de evolution or the development of useful knowledge. He argues that knowledge is super fecund, that is, this is much more knowledge created than is actually possible to utilize. So there must be some decision, some fitness criterion relevant for deciding which knowledge is useful and which one is not useful. And this usefulness issue, that could be a key to ask what uh, is a criterion for useful knowledge. What is useful? When is knowledge useful and when is it not useful? Um, I have my own ideas about how this could work, but that is a um, large issue of its own. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I can explain that here, if we have enough time to do that. Um, yes, well, yes, okay. Um, it is basically um, contingent on what kind of naturally endowed preferences we have. For instance, when we are hungry, when we are thirsty, when we thirsty, when we need housing, etc., these kinds of basic needs—let's call them basic needs—that's a term from development economics. Um, these basic needs are part of our genetic endowment, and if we can use knowledge 
that improves our way of satisfying these needs, then knowledge is useful. Okay, and improvements in knowledge of how to satisfy these needs is a driver of economic evolution and has been for hundreds of years up to the late Middle Ages when the industrial development started. Up to that time, it was basically learning about satisfying basic needs better in agriculture and uh, also in certain cultural needs. Um, I have a theory about these preferences and how they affect um, consumer behavior, which I published 2017 in the Journal of Evolutionary Economics, uh, which deals with the evolution of consumption. So there is one criterion here, but it is not sufficient because um, we decide on what is useful for us, not only on the basis of our basic needs, but also on the basis of what we have learned to prefer, on our learned preferences. Innovations are pretty much in consumer realm, that is consumer innovations, are pretty much about learning how to uh, generate pleasure or satisfaction, preference satisfaction, um, in ways that have not been known before. Um, to give an example, mobility has probably uh, always been one of the um, basic needs humans had, but with the development of um, uh, means of traffic, railways, automobile, etc., it became, um, a, and finally aircraft, aircrafts, it became an option where we learned to differentiate our preferences as learned preferences. No one 200 years ago would have had an idea what um, a Mallorca holiday might mean. Nowadays we have this as an offer in mass tourism to almost everyone and everyone can afford it and everyone wants to have it. So the knowledge that led to this increase of mobility has uh, not only improved our way of satisfying a basic need, namely mobility, but also has differentiated our preference of mobility in many ways so that we um, now have many more ideas of um, what to prefer in, in this relationship. And finally, uh, usefulness is also, of course, contingent on cognitive reflection. So basically we have three elements, our genetic endowment, our learned preferences, and finally what we think um, is useful for us. Uh, cognition constructs uh, means-ends relationships and satisfying such means-ends relationships is a rewarding experience in its own. So it is a motivational force that also drives um, our way of interpreting what is useful for us. It is very obvious, of course, in the context of economic problems like investment, etc., etc., where almost only cognitive reflections decide what is useful. Now, what you see is we have here a very complex fitness criterion compared to the fitness criterion in evolutionary biology. 
And that, of course, makes the business of economists not easier. But I think that's the only way we can try to make progress to arrive at the end in these kind of um, type 3 explanations of pattern explanations. Good. Can we please move to the final part of the book and the chapters devoted to welfare and sustainability and your own chapter there? Yes, that's a joint paper with Martin Binder, who is a former doctoral student of mine as well. Uh, and it uh, deals with a problem which, in our view, has been neglected in evolutionary economics. Most uh, researchers in this field are tacitly presuming that innovations can only do good. So they are welcome. And uh, in fact, they do increase, in many cases, labor productivity. They have contributed to our um, economic growth. Um, they have made many jobs in the industry easier and healthier. All this is taken for granted. But this does not mean that innovations are always uh, beneficial. So we pose the question, as innovations drive economic change, do they also improve our welfare? Okay, And that means um, we have to uh, find a way to assess the effect of innovations. It is without discussion. We cite here a book with a nice title, um, Innovations Bite Back. Um, where lots of examples are given where innovations had um, effects that were undesirable so that the innovations had to be abandoned, but only after they had already caused a lot of harm. For instance, asbestos has created a cancer risk. Uh, fluorocarbon uh, dioxide has uh, created a challenge for the ozone layer in the atmosphere various um, drugs that have been developed had been very welcome when they got to the market and later it turned out that they had lethal side effects and had to be withdrawn. So there are lots of such examples where due to the nature of innovations, it turns out that they have harmful effects only later. Um, and um, this is one of the problems we have in assessing um, the effects of innovations, that we have this epistemological barrier. It is novelty which we cannot fully anticipate. Um, <clears throat> but in an exposed perspective, we can, of course, um, say more about the effects of innovations. And um, there are a couple of effects that... Um, have not gained the attention they deserve. We distinguish, on the one hand, the externalities, um, and on the other hand, the effects on um, our uh, preferences. I will turn to the first issue first, the externalities. There are two kinds of externalities. One kind is the pecuniary externalities, that is, all the effects which innovations have on competitors and customers, 
which are mediated by the market. That's why they are called pecuniary. They have a price. They are price. They have a tag, a price tag in the price system. Uh, these kinds of externalities mean that um, competitors who are hit by the innovation, who may have invested a lot into their older technology, have to write off this uh, wealth. It is suddenly becoming valueless. Labor is laid off by the effect that innovations cost uh, their jobs. Um, and uh, there are other such uh, pecuniary effects caused by innovations. The um, market mechanism does not take care of these uh, effects because it is assumed this is a normal effect of competition. Okay, But um, for those who are hard hit, who lose their jobs and who lose their wealth, this may be um, uh, of little help um, and in our view societies have developed um, contingent on their risk preference um, different attitudes towards innovations some historical societies have simply uh, um, forbidden all kind of innovative competition in medieval times for instance the um, the guild system uh, this is a way of protecting labor, protecting investors from innovative competition, which comes, of course, at the cost that you don't have innovations and you don't have the pro progress, economic progress, which innovations carry for the economy. Um, other societies have a very open attitude and a risk loving attitude uh, towards innovations. They appreciate innovations grosso modo. Um, you could argue the American society is a society like that. Um, and then you have a hard time if you are among the losers that are affected by the innovation. The European societies tend to be in the middle stage. They are open to innovations, they take the risk, but on the other hand, they have created a welfare compensation mechanism that offers uh, a kind of insurance for those who are hard hit by innovations in terms of uh, um, insurance against being laid off, um, uh, in terms of uh, minimal wages or minimal income, even if you are unemployed. Um, they do not, however, compensate wealth losses um, of capital owners. That is a risk that still exists, but um, the welfare state can be seen as a um, compensation for those who are the losers in this innovation, innovative change. The other form of externalities are so-called technological externalities. They are not mediated by the market mechanism. They don't have a price tag. And these are all the uh, effects on de degrading our environment, spoiling groundwater, uh, exhausting soil, 
um, spilling waste into the atmosphere, including thermal waste, which is um, contributing to the climate change effect. Um, and many of the innovations turn out to have these technological in, uh, externalities only when they have already been implemented with quite a bit of investment. Now, um, are there any mechanisms to anticipate these uh, negative effects of innovations? I think there are not. They cannot be fully um, anticipated. And again, therefore, it is a matter of risk attitude of societies, whether they appreciate innovations with all the risks they carry. Um, and we can only talk about how um, we can design institutions that create incentives to discover the externalities as early as possible and then to prevent moral hazard, that is to prevent that people who already learned that there is a problem with their innovation still go on to earn money before they are pushed out of business. So that is um, one of the questions that we discuss uh, and we, our argument is that um, despite the externalities, um, innovations so far have contributed to increasing our welfare if we measure it in terms of the conventional measure of GDP or uh, disposable income or any of such measures. Um, the question mark we have to put here is, of course, that we do not yet know whether we have already had so many technological externalities in terms of um, uh, atmospheric um, waste, that CO2 emission, that we have a process in our natural climate that is probably coming out as a very expensive, um, perhaps even welfare decreasing development. This is something we do not yet know. The other point we make in this paper is more a theoretical point, and it relates to the deeper issue as to whether the GDP or economic growth of growth of disposable income or the growth of real consumption is really a reasonable measure for welfare. And the concerns we have here is exactly, again, preference learning. I mentioned that already in relation to the first chapter. When we learn many of our preferences as a result of all the innovations we are offered and exposed to, then, of course, the measuring rod by which we measure progress um, is itself subject to the same change it is supposed to measure. And that's a logical uh, incompatibility. Uh, if preferences are not constant over time, we cannot measure the effect on welfare over time. We can only measure the effect given the state of the preferences before the innovative change or alternatively using the preference we have learned and developed after the introduction of the innovative change. 
these are two very different ways of assessing um, the welfare effects of an innovation. And it turns out that they can have dramatically different consequences uh, if we use the pre-innovation preferences as a measure many of the innovations have no welfare increasing effect simply because we have not yet learned to appreciate them. If we take the post-preference change preferences, the state of preferences, so if we judge from the preference we have already learned, uh, taking away the innovation would be felt as a loss, as a welfare loss. Okay, so we have learned to appreciate something that if it is taken away causes a welfare loss. If we hadn't learned that, if we take the pre-innovation preferences, it would not be a loss at all. Okay, there is a disparity over time. And um, welfare theory and more broadly utility theory, including its normative branch, um, has no criterion to determine which of the preferences we should choose. Okay, um, if we choose always the current state, that is the post-innovation state of preferences, we have to admit that we are in a drift process. Our preferences and our value judgments about welfare increases are drifting. Okay, uh, and that raises, of course, questions about whether this is a reasonable criterion for assessing um, whether economic change indeed, innovative change indeed um, causes welfare increases, as it is usually taken for granted, particularly in uh, the uh, canonical mainstream textbook welfare theory where you assume simply, you assume away the problem by arguing preferences are invariable. You read uh, a sample of the essays and they are clearly erudite from a theoretical point of view, but also with so many implicit and explicit uh, policy implications. Uh, I would like to ask you if you are working on a new book, so if you have a current project. Well, it is actually... Um a book that deals with a somewhat different but related issue. Um, as I said, it's uh, also on this problematic uh, of changing preferences, but in a different context. I um, um, consider this in the context of whether capitalism creates progress. This is a topic that has a long um, history going back to the, yeah, I would say pre-Darwinian pre series of evolution. Um, the idea that the humankind is making progress is a very old philosophical topic. Uh, it has been uh, emphasized in um, the uh, German Romantic philosophy, for example, Hegel, Herder, Fichte, who argued that um, evolution is the description of human humanity's ethical betterment. Okay, humans become ethically improved over 
their history from the uh, savage to the educated, cultivated citizen who has a high standard of ethics and morale. Um, if you look at the economic equivalent about, if you look at economic progress, this is a somewhat more mundane issue. Um, it is not about ethical betterment, but about betterment of life. That is, if we have a concept of good life, is it becoming better as a result of economic progress? Um, and there are two issues here. On the one hand, uh, life can become better because we arrange ourselves with the possibilities we have and find them and learn to find them attractive and satisfactory. Or um, we uh, expect that capitalism produces ever more opportunities and um, progress then is a betterment in the sense uh, uh, better life in the sense of being able to consume more resources. I think that uh, the uh, capitalist culture is pretty much a culture that emphasizes for reasons of commercial motives this kind of letter betterment concept. You only fare better if your income increases. Um, and we measure, in fact, in all the measures for economic growth, exactly this kind of betterment. Um, but on my, in my view, this is a, a cultural turn that is totally different from the view mankind had some 200 or 250 years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, before capitalism. Um, and if we see the side effects of this turnaround which capitalism brought, um, we find a lot of unattractive features that also come with the capitalist development, the mass production, um, which are not necessarily contributing to something that is better, so that we have to ask ourselves, what is actually the part that is improving due to the capitalist development and what part is not improving and we should probably scale back the commercial motivation that drives it in order to have a better life without this commercial pressure. This is a very nuance, many nuance and facets in this problem. Um, but I would argue that it is uh, not necessarily a, a counter-argument against capitalism, which in my view is basically a technology based on mass production, uh, but more so against the commercial attitude of subjecting ever more spheres of our life to mass production and all its side effects. Wow. So it's a bit more a cultural criticism, if you want. <laughs> Good luck with this project, and in, uh, for the time being, congratulations for the book that you just published. 
We spoke with uh, Professor Ulrich Witt from Max Planck Institute in Jena, and uh, he co-edited with Andreas Chai, uh, Great New Books in Economics, and this is Understanding Economic Change, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.